You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. This 70-year family saga starts in the 19th century, during the reign of Britain's Queen Victoria. Through the human stories of British, American, and Chinese families, the novel tells the sweeping and dramatic tale of how the West met the exotic empire of China and humiliated her. The history it relates led directly to the tragic events of the 20th century and the attitude of China towards the rest of the world today. 19th century China was a proud and ancient empire ruled by the Manchu and forbidden to foreigners. The West, and Britain in particular, had an unquenchable appetite for Chinese tea, but lacked the silver to buy it. So Western merchant adventurers resorted to smuggling in opium in exchange. The Chinese emperor, determined to prevent his people from sinking into addiction, sent the incorruptible Viceroy Lin to Canton, the main hub of the opium trade, to stop it. The British sent gunboats, and the opium wars began, heralding a period of bloody military defeats, reparations, and one-sided treaties which became known in China as the Century of Humiliation. From Hong Kong to Beijing to the Great Wall, from the exotic wonders of the Summer Palace and the Forbidden City, to squalid village huts, the dramatic struggle rages across the celestial kingdom. This is the story of the Chinese people, high and low, and the Westerners who came to exploit the riches of their ancient land and culture. We meet a young village wife struggling with the rigid traditions of her people, Manchu empresses and warriors, powerful eunuchs, fanatical Taiping and boxer rebels, Savvy Chinese pirates, artists, concubines, scoundrels, and heroes, well-intentioned missionaries, and the rapacious merchants, diplomats, and soldiers of the West. I have tried to tell the tale of this mighty clash of world views, of mutual misunderstanding, of fortunes gained, battles fought, and loves lost, as humanly and honestly as I can, as seen from both sides of the divide. I found myself fascinated, made wiser, and often moved, and I hope that you may be too. And I quote, Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. That, of course, was not written by me. I just read the author's summary. Very often I read the publisher's summary at either goodreads.com or audible.com. Audible is a great resource. That's where I listen to all of the audiobooks that I listen to, which is quite a lot. I'm up to 19 this year so far, well on my way to reaching my goal of one book read for every week of the year. 52 is my goal. I think I will meet that. We'll see. But the most recent book that I have finished this year, in 2022, is China by Edward Rutherford. That was, of course, the author, Edward Rutherford's summary of his own work, I think written and published before the book was finished and available, because the top of the page at uh, edwardrutherford.com uh, 
the top of the page here for this novel in particular says my new novel China will be published in May 2021. Well, of course, that's last year. So I think maybe Mr. Rutherford, you should update your website. But let's not get hung up on that. Let's talk about the book, the novel itself. It's somewhat on the longish side. And when I say that, I don't mean any disrespect, but it felt like it was longer than the James Clavell novels in the Asian saga that it reminded me of. It felt like it was longer, although there have been definitely a few of those James Clavell Asian saga novels that felt very long. King Rat, about a Japanese POW camp during World War II, that felt very, very long. That was a hard one to get through, in part because it's just so soul-crushingly depressing and sad, and you don't want to really put yourself in the shoes of American, Australian, British POWs as they're being dehumanized. But in the case of Rutherford's novel, China, the novel, Audible tells me it's 34 hours and 49 minutes long, and that's about par for this kind of novel, in my experience. Missioners, The Covenant was on the longish side. It was about that long, this historical fiction genre. Uh, that's been my experience thus far with the works I've picked up, the epics that I've picked up. And honestly, it's it's a very interesting book. I think anybody who enjoys James Clavell's Asian saga and is fascinated by Far Eastern, East Asian, Oriental culture and history, I think they're going to enjoy this book. But for me, there was something different about it, which feels a bit hard to put my finger on because the time period is pretty close to the Asian saga. I really, really enjoyed James Clavell's Asian saga. I didn't quite enjoy this to the same extent. I, I, maybe it's a style of writing. Maybe it's a pace and tempo. Uh, maybe it's a, a question of whether there is a focus, sufficient focus. But I think part of what it is, honestly, is when, let's say, uh, James Clavell's Shogun novel was written or Taipan, when Taipan was written. You know, those two novels came out in 1975 and 1966, respectively. Now, chronologically, within the universe of the Asian saga, Taipan is later, right? It comes later. Shogun is uh, kind of a prequel book that Clavel writes, uh, you know, almost a decade after writing Taipan. Taipan, for its part, was four years after King Rat, which I had the hardest time with. I think it was based the most off of Clavel's own experience as a a POW, Australian-born British screenwriter 
World War II veteran. But I think that Clavel writing in the 60s and the 70s, I think Guy Jin was published 1993. he, He was writing at a very, very different time. And also, I'm sure, again, writing from some firsthand experience at a very different time, much closer to the events being talked about and discussed and explored in Edward Rutherford's novel, China, and also Clavel's novels, his Asian saga. And I think those things make a big difference. I think the perspective of Clavel seems to be uh, much more even-handed. Not to say that all the Westerners, all of the Scotsmen and Englishmen and Americans who are doing business and trade with China, Hong Kong, Japan in the mix, uh, that they're all good guys. They're definitely not. But there is definitely a focus on a Western family that passes power down through the centuries, is trying to struggle with this East meets West uh, dynamic. And China doesn't really feel like it focuses as much on the perspective of a Westerner. It actually feels much more like a product of our time. And it, it, it feels born of the narrative that the West is bad. Colonialism was just categorically wrong. Imperialism is a uniquely Western, white, uh, supposedly quasi allegedly, professedly Christian feature of civilization. And not just a feature in an even-handed sense, but an evil thing. And it, it feels a lot like China by Edward Rutherford paints the Chinese as victims in the typical anti-imperialism mold. And just to be quite frank with you, I, I don't like that. I, I don't like that. I, I I think it's possible to say that bad things were done by the British, for instance, by the Americans, for instance, by Australians, for instance, you know, by by the English speaking peoples who came to the Far East to trade and to do business and to do commerce and to make diplomatic arrangements and also to protect their interests. And also sometimes the mistakes made were not just mistakes. They were premeditated crimes and evil things that were done. And yes, there there's definitely an element of red team, blue team, wherein even your bad actors from the West uh, were given a kind of preferential treatment. But then, of course, that's part of what comes with the territory when you're talking about people being loyal first and foremost to their own culture, their own nation, their own creed, their own family. What I dislike, what I find disingenuous, just to be entirely honest with you, about Edward Rutherford's China is that 
that very human story is portrayed in its negative aspects as being a uniquely white Western English speaking European colonialist imperialist problem. And, and all the more feeding into and buying this narrative that history is nothing more than a tale of the oppressed being downtrodden by the wealthy and the powerful, promoting class struggle, promoting Marxism, promoting communism at the end of the day. This anti-Western bend does not follow from the facts or it doesn't make the best sense of the evidence at hand. It just doesn't. And, and again, I don't want to ding Rutherford's novel here too much for not being James Clavell's novel, but there's something perverse about telling, let's say, an American audience, for instance. I mean, this novel is in English. Rutherford certainly seems like a Western last name. Edward is certainly a Western name, first name, Christian name. I'm reading the publisher's summary in English. I am reading the author's summary in English. And it feels a bit perverse to paint the West as villainous as a rule and merely well-intentioned as an exception, right? So the, so the only positive thing I see in all of this with regards to any kind of a Western person is this one brief phrase describing missionaries as well-intentioned. We meet a young village wife struggling with the rigid traditions of her people. So she's oppressed, right? That's, that's, what, you, that's what you're supposed to read there, right? She's an oppressed woman, and thank God for feminism now, because otherwise, whew. Manchu empresses and warriors... With no value statement, by the way. Like I'm reading directly from the author's summary. But there's no value statement being made there. Just Manchu empresses and warriors. They can just be empresses and warriors and do what empresses and warriors do. Namely, in the case of an empress, rule an empire. Or in the case of a warrior, fight wars. They can just do that and it's neutral. No value judgment being made in the author's summary either to malign or to praise. But the silence is a kind of tacit approval, acceptance at least. We'll say acceptance and a tolerance. A Manchu empress is accepted as being the rightful ruler of an empire. A Manchu warrior is accepted as being legitimately a war fighter for China. Powerful eunuchs, which is funny, right? Because I, there's this whole extended scene in the book talking about this one character who is married and has children and is kind of down on his luck financially. And he gets a brainwave that he is going to have a procedure done whereby he will become a eunuch. And then he will be able to get a job working for 
the royal court because he's got to be a eunuch in order to do that. As we've talked in recent episodes, that's a very ancient practice. Well, it's not very ancient in some places, and it wasn't ancient. It wasn't outdated or abolished in the case of China 150 years or so ago. And I didn't think to myself, wow, what a powerful man. What a powerful man who would make this decision and then rise to a place of prominence and influence because he's doing the nails of one of the emperor's most favorite concubines. I didn't think to myself that some guy, some eunuch, who cared more about money than he did keeping his manhood, I didn't think to myself, man, that sounds like a powerful man. No, you you have you, you get to a position of power and prominence and authority and influence behind the scenes, but as a soft kind of feminine influence. It's not, a, it's not power in the traditional sense. Why are we supposed to think of you as powerful, eunuch? No. And more to the point, of course, it's not the eunuch who's presenting himself. It's, it's the author who's presenting this eunuch as powerful for giving up on toxic masculinity, probably. I don't know. So the Taiping and Boxer rebels, meanwhile, they are described as fanatical. Okay, so fanatical. Well, fanatical, like, you, 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 you kind of give, and, and I felt this way as I was reading the book, reading the novel, you, you kind of give these boxer rebels in particular a veneer of respectability by having portrayed the West's engagement in China in the most cold, ruthless, calculating, unfeeling, unflattering light. And, and, and the, the big idea here, the big idea is that the celestial kingdom, China, lost face. So then the emperor loses his position. He falls out of favor because he's not got a handle on this. And then you get the dowager empress. And then she, in turn also, is unable to contain these Westerners who are ravaging the land. But the boxer rebels who go around brutally raping and murdering, torturing, destroying, not only Westerners that they find, but also Chinese who have converted to Christianity, these boxer rebels are merely fanatical, right? Yeah, they got, you know, what I read here is, yeah, they got a little carried away, you know, but who could blame them? I mean, those Western devils, those white Western colonialist, imperialist, capitalist devils kind of had it coming, right? Yeah, they got a little fanatical, a little carried away, but what do you do? Next, the Chinese pirates are characterized as savvy. Okay, so they're savvy. So let me get this straight. When the, when the Chinese pirates are literal pirates, we're going to describe them as savvy. But later in this same paragraph where you're giving us a brief character sketch of all of the different players in your story, you're going to describe the merchants, diplomats, and soldiers of the West as rapacious. 
So literal Chinese pirates are savvy, but Western merchants, diplomats, and soldiers are rapacious. You see how that works? It's a double standard because we won. It's a double standard because the victor is the bad guy, must be, because we hate the West. And we're going to tell an apology through China the novel. And I again, I don't remember James Clavell's Asian saga ever feeling like it was either on the one hand presenting an uncritically positive picture of Western engagement in the Far East, nor, on the other hand, demonizing Western engagement. It felt much more even-handed. And, and, and also with regards to the Japanese, Chinese, and various other nationalities, but primarily Chinese and Japanese uh, players, characters, in the mix, factions in the mix. Clavel's work showed me something that I think is much truer to life, which is that you can have very decent people who are Western. Yes, they are there to make money. Yes, they are there with a commercial interest. Yes, they are there with a national interest and a personal stake. And yes, sometimes they will do things that you're like, huh, ooh, hmm. But on the other hand, you will have villains. You will have cruel, sadistic, evil, dishonest, bad, bad men from the West. And you will have people pursuing self-interest on all sides. You will have noble characters who do decent things and who sometimes feel conflicted on all sides, east and west. And you'll have just really, really bad people on all sides, east and west. But I, I don't like this. I, I Frankly, I, I, I enjoyed the novel. I'm glad I read it. I'm glad I finished it. I was committed to finishing it. It's the last novel that was in my queue from my time working for Sterling Energy before I took this job. I've been at since November. And so there's something good about, I think, having completely refreshed my queue, right? Like I picked up this novel when my head was kind of in a different place. What I needed to counteract and balance and even out my work experience and general life uh mix was a bit different than what I'm in the mood for right now, but I still wanted to finish this, but it was harder to finish. Like I felt like James Clavell's novels, it was hard to put them down. It was hard to hit pause. Like I kept looking for excuses to do something else just to let the audiobook play a little longer so I could finish it. Or at least get through the end of a scene. And China by Edward Rutherford, I had to work harder to keep listening so I could finish it. <laughs> I had to like consciously make the decision. No, okay, I am going to finish this. I'm never going to finish it if I don't just knuckle down and do it. 
But I, I, I think that this does get to a, a, a profound host of problems. You know, one is that history is messy, right? People are messy in the present. And then the further back into history people get, events get, events caused by people, reacted to by people, interpreted by people, the further back in history all of the above gets, the more intervening people and years and events shape and mold how we think of what originally happened. So it gets to be more and more messy. And only the good Lord knows what is happening right this instant, much less what happened in the 19th century in China. But it can be true at the same time that there were bad actors in the American camp, in the British camp, in the Australian camp. And also that on the whole, it was a legitimate endeavor they were engaged in. Now, I say that, and just as quickly, I can say I empathize with Chinese emperors saying, we don't want you selling opium here. Our people are getting addicted to it. It's just not good. It's no good. No, no more opium trade. If the shoe was on the other foot, and I think you have a similar, similar type situation in America right now where drugs are coming into this country from Mexico and elsewhere, illegal drugs, very often caught, smuggled in, looking like something else. Our government, our people get pretty frustrated about that, get pretty upset about that. Now, we don't get quite upset enough to topple regimes, typically, I don't think. I could be wrong about that, but I don't think we do. But you can sympathize at least with a country that says absolutely not. And especially if the foreign power is going to employ its naval supremacy against you, if you try and stop its merchants and traders and smugglers from importing opium into your country. I mean, there's so many ways in which that is at a minimum just cause for all of humanity to disapprove. But was that all there was to it? Just because that was in the mix? Can we boil it down to that and nothing more? For another thing, I think in our day, it can be easy to look back and assume that everybody was always just as keenly aware of the long-term effects of drugs like opium as we are today, right? That there was as much education, as much awareness, as much knowledge, as much familiarity. But it's important to remember that, for instance, Coca-Cola, originally the formula was cocaine, right? Coke, it was originally cocaine. Cocaine soda, how does that sound? Does that suit you? Well, of course not, right? Of course it doesn't. Because 
now we know better, or at least a great many of us know better. And so I think to some extent we have to put a little bit of an asterisk next to the opium wars, a little bit, not a major one, but a little bit. The attitude towards opium was very different then than it is now. So you put off to the side the whole business of opium. And let's just talk about national self-interest. What rights should Western powers like Great Britain have respected with regards to China, for instance? Or, for another example, what rights to national self-interest on the part of Japan should America have respected? Instead of gunboat diplomacy, perhaps what we should have said was, okay, you know what? You guys don't want to trade? You don't want to trade. Was it right and proper for us to say, no, by golly, you are going to open your ports to us. We are going to trade with you, whether you like it or not. Was that right? Was that good? Was that appropriate? Or was that wrong? Or is that just one of those things that we should look at in an even-keeled way and remark on and say, it, it happened, right? I wouldn't necessarily have handled it that way myself, but that's what happened. And that's the story of nations, and that's the story of history, and that's not a uniquely Western feature that that happened. That's a human feature. That is a people living in a fallen world, being sinful fallen creatures themselves feature. I don't like the move towards looking at every other non-Western culture in an overly glowing, positive light, glossing over the mistakes made, the bad actors, the bad actions, always making excuses, always justifying, always sticking up for. But then when we come to Western culture, Western civilization, never presenting questionable actions in a positive light, never looking at it from the standpoint of, well, okay, yes, I don't agree with what they did there, but here's how they were seeing it. It's like a recent conversation I was having with someone I know in which we were talking about a gentleman who will remain nameless and the person I was talking with will remain nameless. But we were talking about someone we know who is not living in a condition that we're happy about. And we want to see restoration of broken relationships here. And we're both praying for that, both praying in that regard. But I would say we're both pursuing that along very different lines. And maybe that's the good Lord's pleasure. And I trust that God knows his mind on that better than I do. And it's sufficient for me to be allowing the Lord to lead me personally. But we were having a back and forth conversation, which I was trying to explain, not excuse, but explain from my having thought about this long and hard, what dynamics I think have fed into the current broken condition of this man's life, his relationships. 
And so I'm trying to explain, without excusing, as a way of understanding how did this happen and can we potentially key in on some of these contributing factors and encourage mitigation of those factors as a way of promoting reconciliation and also as a way of learning from this so that we ourselves don't fall into temptation as well. So that's how I'm approaching it. But as soon as, and it, boy, howdy, it like I'll be honest, it really got under my skin. I was so frustrated because I'm trying to explain these things from the standpoint of let's understand better what happened here. And it must have happened half a dozen times if it happened once that my friend jumps in, all worked up, hackles raised, getting super defensive. Well, hey, but that doesn't make it right. No, it doesn't make it right. I'm not saying it is an excuse. I'm just trying to explain, having talked with him, having looked at the situation, having analyzed it, trying to come up with some solutions here. I am just saying, I think I understand some of how this happened and some of what's in the mix here. But it's like, I keep getting cut off as I'm trying to explain and say, hey, you know, here's what I think's going on. Because my friend with whom I was talking about these things doesn't want to hear it. He's just decided that he's angry. He's decided that it's all this guy's fault. And that's all there, that's all there is to it. That's all we need to know. You know, we're having this conversation about it. And I'm thinking to myself, it's like, okay, yes, our friend in question is a sinner. Absolutely. So are you. So am I. So noted. Also, all of the other people in the mix here, in this situation, are sinners. Is it helpful for us to key in exclusively on the sinful nature of one party to the exclusion of considering the sinful nature of all other parties concerned. Is that helpful? Is it helpful? Is it necessary? Is it true? Or is it a kind of dishonesty? Is it a kind of covering sins? Not with mercy and grace and atonement, but with omission and exaggeration by turn. Yeah, I think it's all too easy if we get sucked in here by the kind of thinking, the kind of presentation that was evident throughout the novel and is evident throughout the author's summary, it's too easy for us to start making excuses for the supposedly oppressed, weaker parties as if any time the strong have a conflict with the weak, it is always the perceived weak who are the victims, and it is always the perceived stronger who are the villains. We live in a day and age in which a great many people cultivate a sense of entitlement in which all too often suffering and being perceived as a victim is mistaken for virtue. We think that because somebody suffered, that makes them a hero. Someone gets cancer and all of a sudden they're our hero. Why? 
you know, love them, encourage them, but just because they got cancer, that doesn't mean that they're more virtuous. God certainly can use that suffering in their lives to grow them, to mature them, to refine them, to teach them, to discipline them. So also everyone around them, absolutely. But suffering is not necessarily a sign of virtue, nor is victory in a tangible sense, having power in a tangible sense, in a material sense, proof that someone is a villain. Now, I say that and someone will say, oh, ho, oh, oh, ho, but it's not the other way around either. Just because somebody's suffering, that doesn't mean they messed up. Just so. Just because somebody is winning, that doesn't mean they're right. Yeah, absolutely, you're right. Totally. I agree. And it's, it's precisely because I agree with both that position and also what I said before, that I think we need to be very, very careful because we can have little imitation, echo, boxer rebellions. People get it in their heads that every Chinaman who converted to Christianity is a traitor to their culture and their people. So they and their whole household need to be brutally murdered, raped, tortured, destroyed. Because we get it in our heads that Western culture, Christianity, capitalism, whiteness, or evil. Be very, very careful with that. That's all the time I've got for this episode, though. I'll say this. I read it. Yeah, it was interesting in a lot of ways, but I didn't love it. Uh, I gave it three out of five stars. It was okay, but I think there's better fare out there. I think James Clavell's Asian Saga quite frankly, is better. Uh, All the better because it was written in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and not published in 2021 by Penguin Random House. The same books (laughs) that got published back in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the 90s go through a very strict political correctness uh, vetting at the major publishing houses today. So probably best to go with something a bit older in most cases, at least in this case, which is sad, unfortunate. Anyway, that's all I've got for this episode. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.